Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We are spending our summer in this book, in the wisdom part of the Bible, in the Old Testament. And as you're finding that, where we're going to be this morning on page 463 in that Pew Bible, if you haven't been with us, uh, we've been in this for a couple of weeks, Solomon continues to explore and evaluate the things we live for, the answers that we pursue in terms of the meaning of life. That's a great way of understanding this book, what Solomon, who wrote these words, is trying to do. And, and this is relevant to us because we are driven, each of us, by the quest for significance. You know, we, we want our lives to matter. And yet, as Solomon has, has told us from the very beginning and continues to weave in and out of this book, on our own, this creation of which we are a part seems to go on in a meaningless cycle and ultimately seems to be going nowhere. Added to this, Solomon has candidly shown us very, very explicitly we are far from perfect, even far from goodness. We consciously, as we looked at last week, even unconsciously oppress each other, abusing, exploiting, ignoring, or just taking advantage of each other in order to get ahead. And because of our sin, this, this, our responsibility for the brokenness and injustice all around us, it's for that reason our lives, as well as our accomplishments, are limited and fleeting. But like I said, in the midst of this, we still have this desire, this urge that we want our lives to matter. We want our lives to have purpose. But the, the dilemma is that in a world where our default is to seek and find our value and our purpose in ourselves, Solomon is about yet again to explore whether flying solo, facing each day on our own, living for me, myself, and I is everything it's cracked up to be. And in that spirit, I invite you to hear Solomon's words from Ecclesiastes 4, starting in verse 7. And again, and again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his wealth, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, I asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken." Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have, have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born into poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with, their, with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And this is the word of the Lord." Thanks be to God. I saw. That's, you've come to now, if you've been with us, when Solomon says, I saw, that's a cue, one of many that he will give us, that he's about to make another observation about life and how some people choose to live it. And if you have those Bibles open, if you were listening, you'll notice in this passage in particular, numbers are important as Solomon again considers a life lived solo. This text uh, does not is probably one of the more familiar ones in Ecclesiastes because if you've, you've probably have heard this text before if you don't realize it because it's frequently used at wedding celebrations. 
And, and as a result of that, many read this text in light of the marriage relationship. But I want to say to you this morning, it's unlikely that Solomon had that in mind when he was writing. It's not that it's inappropriate to apply it in view of marriage. It's very appropriate. But what's the, why I'm bringing this out is what Solomon's writing here is not exclusive to marriage. He's not, in other words, writing a commentary here against living the single life. Instead, how we need to see this is Solomon is giving an assessment of existing in solitary confinement. Of, or, or if we literally translate, more literally translate what Solomon writes here, his first words in verse 8. You have it in front of you, it's going to sound a little different. More literally translated, Solomon writes in verse 8, I saw one person who has no other, having neither son nor brother. In other words, Solomon is giving us the picture of a person who isn't merely living single, but is living alone, without a second, no siblings, no friends, no real community. A long time ago, a long, long time ago, in a decade known as the 60s, anyone remember the 60s? That was... (laughs) Someone told me, someone told me, if you, if you remember the 60s, then you weren't there. <laughs> but long, long ago, in a, in, a, in a decade known as the 60s, there was a band called Three Dog Night. You remember Three Dog Night? They released their debut album, I think it was uh, 1969. 1969, and it featured a top 10 song called One is the Loneliest Number. You know this song? Yes. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Yeah? You got the rest going in your head now? This, this song was a hit because it struck a chord with many, many people. And yet thousands of years before we had this hit song, a king in Jerusalem tenderly expressed in his own words and way that working and moving through life alone is a tragic way to live. Again, consider the picture that Solomon paints for us. One person stands alone. He has no second. He has, Solomon says, no sons, no brothers. These are the two closest male relationships across two generations. Why is this man alone? Solomon tells us, because there was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. Sometimes we're alone because we're grieving a loss a geographical separation from other people, a breakup within a relationship or a community, a death we're continuing to wrestle with in our lives. But there's a stark difference between being alone for a season due to bereavement and being isolated from others for your whole life. The person Solomon describes here is someone whose life consists only of work, of wealth, This is a person who treasures money and career over relationships. This is someone who chooses to isolate themselves from others in order to get ahead. No time for family, no true friendships. People are treated like currency. Each person's value is found in what they can do for you, how they can help you in acquiring what you want. The loner Solomon describes here is running fast, working hard, moving forward. But as this person, this lone person admits, they never stop to consider what it's really all for. They never get to experience any real enjoyment because they have cut themselves off from the very relationships in which we celebrate and share our labors and their fruits. Beloved, 
work and wealth can add comfort and increase pleasure in life. Solomon has talked about this. But work and wealth never creates it. Money and possessions cannot secure joy. When there's no one to share life with, our gains, in fact, can become our burdens, right? As Jesus put it, we're always building bigger barns. We're always worrying about our stuff getting lost or becoming damaged. Can you relate to this picture that Solomon paints? Have you ever functioned like this? Are you functioning like this now? Do you live for yourself or do you live for others? How important to you is the exercise of your own individual goals and desires? How loosely do we hold on to our money and our possessions? Do we spend and share what we have with others or is it all just for ourselves? To give a more pointed way of reflecting on this, I want you to, to have a mental picture in your head. I want you to picture your home, your domain, your space, that place where all your stuff is, that place that you've organized and decorated a particular way to reflect your accomplishments, your achievements, your preferences, who you are. Imagine that space, your home, and in that sacred space that reflects who you are, I want you to imagine a child. A child in the midst of all that is sacred who ruins or breaks something you value highly. This has never happened to any of us before, has it? Imagine that child ruining or breaking something you value highly. How will you respond? Because you see, it's in these moments, these small but significant moments, that our true values come out. They almost surprise us. How will you respond? Will you respond in a way that values your relationship with that child? Or will you respond in a way that shows that item is of more importance? This is what Solomon is tapping into. A couple weeks ago, as he looked at this from another angle, not community, but just work and accomplishments and all the things we pursue, one of the points that I stress Solomon was drawing out is that there's a significant difference in the Christian community. We as Christians, are not, our lives are not so much to be about leaving a legacy as they are about leaving a testimony. It's not about the stuff we leave behind for others to fight over. But it's about the testimony of the relationships that we've had, the relationships in Christ that we've built during the time that God's given us. I wonder if you've chewed on that. Are, are, you, are you leaving a legacy or are you building a testimony? Because the reason why I bring, come as, bring us back to this is one of the things that Solomon is saying is that sometimes, sometimes the amount of money or stuff we are leaving behind proves we spend our lives gathering possessions rather than building relationships. We are more fixated and focused on how our space is kept, how our stuff looks and is maintained than the very people who occupy the spaces of our lives. And I know it's hard to see because it, Solomon's resolution to this is sort of sandwiched in the middle, but Solomon just continues on this idea of isolation. If you go down to your, your Bible's open, move down to verse 13 as he further expands his argument by his, this argument that we're better together than living alone when he now describes an old king. An old king, a man in a position of power with years of experience and yet who is an unwise fool. Why? Because he acts alone. The king's foolishness is perceived in his disconnect from others. Specifically, his unwillingness to, to, 
take advice, to seek the counsel of other people. And in contrast, Solomon gives us this picture of a poor youth who demonstrates wisdom in relying on others to rise from his humble beginnings to a place of authority. And as if you read these words about this poor youth, and if you think of Joseph back in Genesis, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think Solomon very much has this in mind. But for me, this, this final part here, what really gets me is I think Solomon concludes this section brilliantly by underscoring how every life matters. And, and it can get lost because in this whole business at the very end of our passage today, when Solomon writes about those who came later were not pleased with the successor, what I think Solomon is tapping into, what he's highlighting, is how isolation doesn't just occur from an individual cutting themselves off from the community. Isolation doesn't just occur from an individual cutting themselves off from the community, but Solomon is teasing out a community can also isolate itself when it fails to remember the value and the worth of the individual. Of the individual. Beloved, are you teachable? Are you teachable? Do you seek and heed the wisdom of others in your life? Is your receptivity to knowledge, the knowledge and experience of another person, biased depending upon your age or theirs. All of us, no matter who we are, need to lean on someone. Even the oldest and most mature person ought to value and pay attention to other voices, even younger ones with new ways of looking at things with different solutions than from the past. And today's youth must seek and respect the experience and insight of those who've come before them. Those who've done it before, who've walked the path, faced the challenges, and endured. Moses needed Jethro. Joshua needed Moses. Naomi needed Ruth. Ruth needed Naomi. Mary needed Elizabeth. Beloved, we divorce ourselves. We put ourselves in solitary confinement. We divorce ourselves from relationships when we refuse to listen to any other opinion or perspective other than our own. I mean, in fact, I, some of the worst decisions in life come when we remain closed off from the counsel of other people. And Solomon, the great king of Jerusalem, the wisest man who ever lived, gives us a better number than one when he writes, two are better than one. In other words, meaning comes through sharing. Being alone exposes a person to vulnerabilities and dangers that Solomon spells out how the power of two counter. He gives us some really practical examples. He writes, two can support each other. Two can comfort each other. Two can protect each other. Two can rescue each other. And, and this is just so basic, so uh, pragmatic. As I read Solomon's words when I was preparing this sermon, it, it took me back. I, I, it took me back to my summers long ago when I learned how to swim. Now, I learned to swim later in life, so as a result, when I learned how to swim, I had a really big obstacle in front of me in learning how to swim, and that obstacle was I was afraid of drowning. Meaning, it wasn't, I, I was very conscious of the fact that in water, if you don't move, you sink. And if you don't move right or fast enough, you go under the water, and if you go under the water, you may stay under the water. And I remember in, in trying to learn how to swim, that was a huge obstacle for me. My sister was learning at the same time. She was younger. She just, she took to it much easier, but I was continually fixated on my fear of drowning. But I had a great swimming instructor. Her name was Sally. And she told me something that helped me to round that corner in learning how to swim that I've never forgotten. And it's probably advice that you learned too when you learned how to swim. And it was this, 
I was repeatedly told to use the buddy system. Never swim alone. Always swim with a buddy. You can't be responsible for everyone else who's in the water, but you can be responsible for your buddy, and your buddy will be responsible for you. Now, being a wisecracking kid, not that you can imagine that at all at that age, and still my wisecracking masking my fear of drowning, I kind of pushed back because this all sounded great as I was taking swimming lessons and Sally was there in the pool with me. But I imagined at some point, once I had learned how to swim, that I'd be going back. This is a public pool, community pool. That I'd be going back and was I going to have to, and I said, so am I, am I going to have to call up a friend every time I want to go swimming so I have a buddy? And she stopped and she said, no, that's what lifeguards are for. That's why we have a lifeguard. Your lifeguard is your buddy. And that's why you need to know the lifeguard is always watching you and you should always be watching the lifeguard. We need the same thing in life. We need others who have our back. We need people who are guarding our lives. And that's why Solomon tells us there's strength in numbers. Now, this would seem obvious, right? I mean, in many ways, this seems like a slam dunk in terms of a Sunday sermon, I wouldn't think they would need much convincing on this. But this is the thing about Ecclesiastes. If you haven't caught it yet, a lot of the things that Solomon says are just basic common sense wisdom. And so we have to ask, well, why is Solomon saying something that's so obvious? Because what Ecclesiastes teases out is what is common sense, and what I would attribute that to is God's sense in us, is constantly in tension with how we practically live. And so even though we wouldn't think we need much convincing on this, even though I'd say that most of us probably would say we don't prefer to be alone, if we really step back and look at how we live, we tend to be pretty isolated from each other, aren't we? I mean, more and more we share space together, but we're not sharing life together. There was this book I read a couple years ago, and in preparing for the sermon, I looked to see if the research has been updated and there's other books that have been written, and in fact, the trend continues, but this was a book a couple years back called Bowling Alone, which was looking at this, just trends in our society. And so the statistics I'm going to sh- share with you are, have actually gone up. But do you know that family dinners at one time, and it's higher now, remember that, are down 33%. Having friends over in your house is down 45%. But on the other hand, drive through and fast food purchases have doubled. And you, you, know, you hear statistics like this, and it's like, okay, but put them together and put that together in a picture. Let me just take what I just said. So family dinners are down, having friends over to your house are down, but drive through and fast food purchases are up. What that means is, for many, their conversation over a meal consists of exchanging a few words with someone in a uniform behind a window. The Bible says love your neighbor, right? And yet these days, I mean, most of us, most people don't even know their neighbors, We don't know our neighbors because we're rarely home. And if we are home, we're locked in, right? We're locked in, we're hardwired, or maybe we should say we're wireless with our own personal home entertainment centers. In the last couple of decades, do you know this? Being and spending considerable time online has quadrupled. We exist anonymously in virtual communities. We reach out and touch people without them necessarily knowing who we are. Watching movies and sporting events at home is up. Reality TV is still hugely popular. Think about that. We watch other people live and have relationships. 
We watch other people live and have relationships. For me, though, the best reflection, and this is outside of remembering that book, the best reflection of this dichotomy between, on the one hand, not wanting to be alone, but still wanting to be left alone, is the local coffee shop. I, I'm, I frequent Starbucks, coffee bean, uh, Pete's. Do you? Do you, do you ever th- stop and look at that picture? And it's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's pretty accurate. It's not 100%. But lots of people go to Starbucks to be around people, but to be alone. They go to just read and have alone time with others present. I know this because sometimes I go and that's what I want, but there are other times when I'm just caught up in the fact that people are there and sometimes I'm, I, you know, I, I, I've confessed this to you before, I eavesdrop on a conversation or I notice something and I have, when I'm at a Starbucks, tried to start a conversation and it has happened on more than one occasion when I've tried to start a conversation with someone who wants to be alone, they get annoyed. And then as I persist in talking or what they might say, don't take a hint, they leave and go somewhere else. I'm sorry, I need to go refill my coffee. It's not empty yet, but I need to go refill it right now. Now, again, I know conversations happen, but do you you ever stop and look at the number of people who are there amongst people but want to be left alone? Most of us, again, would, would say we don't prefer to be alone, yet culturally, don't we pride ourselves on rugged individualism? Don't we? I mean, from an early age, right? We lobby for our privacy, We learn yes, we learn no, and then we learn mine. And as we grow up, come on, as we grow up, most of us can't wait to get out from under our parents and live on our own. And then once we're adults in the world, once we're adults in the world, we don't ask, we demand our right to live life on our own terms. Ask yourself, if you think I'm conflating this, ask yourself, how much value do you place on your own independence and self-reliance. How much value do you place on your own independence and self-reliance? Are you willing to adjust your goals, your desires, your autonomy, your freedom for the sake of living in community? To make it a lot more basic, are you okay when you don't get it your way? Are you okay when you don't get it your way? And And I I bring this up only in light of where Solomon takes us. I've brought this up before, but it bears narrowing the focus. This tendency towards rugged individualism at the expense of authentic community has even seeped into the church. We've, We've talked about this, but it bears seeing it again in a different way. Many of us, we live more and more in an age where we have reduced Christianity to what I believe, to what I accept as true. We evaluate, we we all do it. Worship services like this one, the music, the sermons, the prayers, based on if it worked for me, if I felt something. And there used to be a time when people would say they were looking for a church home. People don't say that anymore. People don't say they're looking for a church home. People say they're shopping for one. They may not seem like much, but think about the subtle shift between looking for a church home and shopping for a church Our evaluative criteria tends to be about the programs I want or the celebrity and appeal of the pastor to me rather than the faithfulness of the congregation. And the most pronounced thing of all is something that we all know. Church attendance is down. And when I say church attendance is down, I'm not talking about people who are not going to church at all. 
I'm saying when I say church attendance is down, church attendance is down among those like yourselves who go to church regularly. Meaning, people who make it a part of their lives to go to church, who haven't left the church altogether, are less regularly going to church. Why? Because we're too busy. Because, and we never say this out loud, we've got better things to do on a Sunday. We don't place, and my point in bringing this out is, again, back to this tension that Solomon's pointing to. We don't place the same value on being together that we once did. More and more, and you know this, maybe you're in this mix. More and more, many are even questioning if even we need to be a part of a church, any church, to believe and follow Jesus. Beloved, please hear this. Please hear this. While our individual understanding of our faith is important, our individual understanding of our faith is important, what I believe, what works for me, what I have time for, what I value, has surprisingly little standing in the kingdom of God. It's a hard word, but you need to hear that. What I believe, me, you, what works for me, for you, what we have time for, what we value has little standing in the kingdom of God. The God we worship is more interested in our ability to come together and share life together. And, and again, if you think that this is me taking pastoral privilege right now, Christ is very clear about where he plans to show up in our lives. And it's not where and when we are flying solo. Jesus affirmed what Solomon teaches us here. Solomon says two are better than one. Meaning comes through sharing. Jesus put it this way. Where two or three or more are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus comes to us. Christ is present among us when we are sharing life together. We can't be rugged individualists as followers of Jesus. Please hear this. We can't. We can't because we have been called into the community of faith. We are part of what's known as the body of Christ. And this impulse towards relationships goes farther back than Pentecost, the birth of the church. One is the loneliest number from the beginning of time. Every aspect of creation, back in Genesis, God pronounces to be good save one thing. Our creator calls out, he explicitly calls out the isolation of the first human, Adam, as not good. We humans were not created to be alone. We're created to live in community. Our need for each other, in other words, is as fundamental. It's something so fundamental that God's built into creation itself. Our need for each other. As human beings, we need relationships with other human beings as much as we need air, food, and water. What this means is loneliness is a byproduct of sin. Ecclesiastes has, has forced us to really get deep into what sin is. And here's another dimension of it. Loneliness is a byproduct of sin. The minute we start living for ourselves in rebellion against the Lord and in rejection of anyone else but me, we separate ourselves from God and divide and isolate ourselves from each other. But here's the good news. This is why we're here, is that on the cross, for our sake, Jesus took our loneliness. Jesus became the one alone. Jesus became the loneliest man who ever lived. 
In his crucifixion, he was abandoned by his nation, his followers, his disciples, his family. He even experienced separation from God himself. What does the loneliest one say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Through the cross, Jesus alone became the one who died so that we will never be abandoned, forsaken, or cut off again. Out of the one called Christ, two became possible. Life in community, full communion with God and with each other. Out of the loneliness of the cross, Jesus breaks into your life to share his life with you and to carry you into eternal life with him. Some of us, I know, are struggling with that sense of isolation. Self-prescribed, or maybe others have put on us. Some of us struggle with feeling cut off, alone. Beloved, no matter how alone you feel, you have company. You have a companion. One may very well be the loneliest number, but it is not your number. It is not our number. We belong to Jesus, and in Christ, we are never alone. But this also means that the game of life is not solitaire. The game of life is not solitaire. A solitary journey is a lonely life. It is not a life well lived. Solomon's simple wisdom here of the three chords is people united together, bringing comfort and strength that we do not, we cannot have alone. And this isn't setting up three as the perfect number. It's just Solomon trying to say in the simplest of terms, we need God and we need each other. Life is about relationships with other people. We're designed by God for friendship, for family, for community. Sharing life together is one of the most visible reflections of the God we worship, of the God who lives in community as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We may come to salvation as individuals, and many of us have a very individualistic understanding of salvation. We may come to salvation as individuals, but we experience that salvation, the mercy, the forgiveness, the love, the resurrection power, the everlasting life in relationship with each other. If from the very beginning God speaks and acts through community, beloved, we need to listen to each other. We need to learn from each other. So many people struggle, as I've said again and again, with this book. So many struggle with Jesus in terms of a personal relationship. They know, believe in Jesus as an idea. They believe in the gospel as a story. They read the Bible. But beloved, with this Bible, this book becomes a living word only when we read it together. When we are listening and caring for each other in the word. Jesus becomes real. You encounter the living Christ more than a proposition, more than an idea, more than a story. You encounter the face of Christ when you listen and serve another person. Being the church, what we're doing here, what we are is so much more than sitting in pews and leaving. Being the church is being the body, the community of Christ. It's about love. Costly love. Yes, it's about truth, but it's about truth not in theory, but in practice. We are transformed by taking relational risks, 
by bearing our souls and confessing our sins to each other. By praying for and blessing each other, we are transformed by giving and sharing our life with each other. And I'm sorry, but you can't do that in an hour and 15 minutes. You can't. Beloved, you've been called here. This is the community. This is the expression of the body of Christ. Do you know the names of the people that you are sitting in this room with? The people who exist at another service. And if you say, I don't, does that trouble you at all? And if you say, well, I don't have time. If you don't have time to get to know the people who sit in the same pews that you do, who do you have time for? Who are you going to get to know? We need to know each other's names. We need to help each other. We need to encourage each other. And I know that many of you do help and encourage each other. But beloved, this is where God is bursting our bubble. It's not just about the little clique or community within the church that we're a part of. God has called us together. We need to be helping and encouraging each other. And that means being aware and open to the help and encouragement we may be giving to people whom we don't know, but yet we share community with. We need to care enough to confront each other. And beloved, that's a, that's a sign of community. Not looking the other way, not avoiding the conversation, but caring enough to confront each other, but being willing to speak truth in a way that allows for reconciliation. We can fight. We need to fight. But fighting's a heck of a lot easier when we're willing to forgive each other and to be forgiven. We don't quit on each other. We don't turn our backs on each other. In Christ, as community in Christ, we carry each other, even when the other person weighs a ton. We carry each other. Are you going it alone? You're here, but are you going it alone? Do you know what team you're on? Women, women, you are my sisters. You are my sisters. I don't just say that because it's a churchy thing to say. You literally are a part of my life. You're my community. Men, you are my brothers. You are my brothers. I need you to speak into my life. I want to speak into yours. We together are the family of God. These are just words we throw around. If we don't live into this identity we have in Christ, we are members of the body of Christ. It's time to get in the game. We need you. We need you. And you need us. We need each other. I was preparing this sermon. It's so funny. Thinking about community and team and, and, a, and a, a name that I came across, a story a couple of years ago popped into my head. Totally believe it's a God thing. I, I am not, you need to understand this before I tell you this. I am not a baseball guy. I can go to a game, watch a game, but I'm not a rabid baseball fan. But I came across a story in 2007, it's with the obituary of a man named Eddie Fainer. I don't know how many of you have heard of Eddie Fainer. Eddie Fainer passed away in 2007. If you haven't heard of him, Eddie Fainer, at his peak, threw a softball harder than any major league pitcher has ever thrown a baseball. Eddie Fainer threw a softball harder than any major league pitcher has ever thrown a baseball. His underhand fastball was once timed at 104 miles per hour. Some accounts say 114 miles per hour. And if you're not a baseball person like me, or not a, a, base, not a baseball like I'm not, 
To give you a frame of reference, the fastest documented pitch ever thrown by a major league pitcher, 103 miles per hour. Eddie pitched in hundreds of games each year against local all-star teams, and get this, he won 95% of the time. 95% of the time. If you look this guy up, Eddie Fainer, Eddie could pitch from second base, he could pitch blindfolded, he could pitch behind his back, between his legs, or from his knees, and still strike the batter out. But as great as Eddie was, this is what got me. He couldn't do it all alone. He had to have a team. No matter how fast he threw the ball, if there was no one to catch, the game would only last one pitch. For all his pitching, he couldn't score runs by himself. Even the best he could throw the ball, he couldn't do it alone. And as it turns out, if you look up Eddie Fainer, he was known as the king, and the king had his court. And the king and his court, as they were known, traveled the world, and as you heard, seldom lost together. But here's the best part. The most amazing thing of all. Their team, their court, included only a catcher, a first baseman, a shortstop, and Eddie. Four people. I'm not a baseball person. But with only four players, they consistently beat teams that had a full roster. Come on. Come on. 95% of the time with four people against a full baseball roster? Beloved, that's the power of a team. That's why two are better than one. That's why a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And it's especially true when Jesus, not Eddie, is the captain of your team. We want our lives to matter, right? We want our lives to have purpose. But as I've confessed, and I'm going to keep on saying it, my default, I don't know about yours, I think it's probably the same, my default is to seek and find my value and purpose in myself, in what I achieve. And looking out for me, myself, and I sounds like a recipe for success. It's what the world tells me I ought to do all the time. But Solomon has tried to show us here, and he's going to keep on repeating this, that it's lonely at the top. And we're not as high as we think we are. It's not good being a lone ranger. Because weaved into the fabric of humanity is this need for companionship and fellowship. One is the loneliest number when we go it alone, when we engage life without God and without building close relationships with each other. So, this, beloved, this morning, don't leave. You may have come this way, but don't leave a solitary, successful person. Don't become someone who lives for popular acclaim. Embrace your relationship with Jesus, the one who calls you friend. The one who calls us to become friends with each other, to become a family who loves and serves each other. Stop and ask yourself, what cord or cords has the Lord placed around you? Who are you a strand to? Make time. Make time for the relationships the Lord has placed in front of you Call that friend. You know the friend I'm talking about. I need to call them. Call them. Speak to that neighbor. Don't just wave as you're driving out of the parking lot or your driveway. Speak to that neighbor. Engage that coworker. Don't just hand them your time card or another form. Engage that coworker. Open up and be real to another person. 
Share Christ who is at work in you. And if you're not sure how Christ is at work in you, maybe when you open up and share yourself, you may discover how Christ is at work in you. Listen, learn, and receive Jesus through the people whom the Lord has surrounded you with. Hear that. Listen and learn from the people the Lord has surrounded you with. Pray, seek, and invite at least one person younger than you and a one person older than you to speak into your life. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to invite one person who's younger than you, at least one, and one person who's older than you and give them permission to speak into your life? Beloved, we are created for community. Solomon is taking down all the things that we make life about. And he's already given us the answer that it, it's about God. It's about Jesus looking ahead. But he's giving us the building blocks. And the building blocks is the flesh and blood of our existence, our living for Christ, for the kingdom together. So let us, may we yield to the work of the Lord as the Spirit purposely and powerfully strengthens the cord of our relationship with God and each other. Our relationships in Christ are our lifeline to our experience, our foretaste of heaven here and now, but they are our lifeline to our eventual and inevitable seat at a table, not for one, but for many, as we rejoice in the banquet feast of redemption in the life to come. All our individual accomplishments will be forgotten in the future, but what we realize for God's kingdom will last because as Solomon has taught us today, there's a limit to what we can do in life alone, but there is no limit to what God can and will do through us together. Amen.